In John Ford's movie, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, we have the famous line, This is the West, sir. When the legend becomes fact, print the legend. Sounds like it's time for episode 72 of Pop Art, the podcast where we find the pop culture in art and the art in pop culture. On Pop Art, my guest chooses a movie from popular culture, and I'll select a film for the more art classic indie side of cinema with a connection to it. I am your, I'm your Huckleberry host, Howard Kasner. Today, I am happy to welcome as my guest, film enthusiast and fellow podcaster, Tob Liebenau, who has chosen as his selection the epic 1990s version of Wyatt Earp, The Widescreen Tombstone, while I have chosen the John Ford classic, My Darling Clementine, both about the mythical figure of the Earp brothers and the gunfight at the OK Corral. Before beginning, I do want to encourage my listeners to follow, like, or comment on the podcast. I want to know what you think. So to begin, Todd, why don't you tell our audience something about yourself? My name is Todd. I have a blog that is called Forgotten Films, where we like to talk about what I call the movies that time forgot, the ones that don't get talked about much anymore. And alongside that, I have a podcast that's called The Forgotten Film Cast, where each episode I'm joined by another film blogger or film podcaster, where we go in depth on a movie that has fallen off the radar a bit, or maybe was never really on the radar that much to start with. The stuff that goes way beyond the new releases and that are the classics. We talk about the movies that don't get talked about anymore. Well, great. Well, with that, let's get to your selection, and that is Tombstone. First, some information about the film. Tombstone is an American Western released in 1993. It was directed by George P. Cosmatos and written by Kevin Shari. It stars Kurt Russell, Val Kilmer, Sam Elliott, Bill Paxton, Powers Booth, Michael Bin, Charlton Heston, Jason Priestley, John Tinney, Stephen Lang, Thomas Hayden Church, Dana Delaney, Paula Malcolmson, Lisa Collins, Joanna Pacula, Michael Rooker, Harry Gary Jr., Billy Bob Thornton, Billy Zane, Robert Mitchum, and Wyatt Earp III as Billy Claiborne. Wyatt Earp III is Wyatt Earp's fifth cousin. <laughs> After hanging up his badge as sheriff of Tucson, Arizona, Wyatt Earp joins his two brothers in Tombstone in order to make their fortune. But they find their attempts to live peacefully made impossible because of a group of notorious outlaws known as the Cowboys, headed by the infamous Clanton Gang. Before getting into the film proper, I thought we would talk more in general about some aspects of the film and Westerns in general. In the second section, when we get to My Darling Clementine, we'll be discussing more the difference between the plots of the films, as well as the differences between the movies and history, what really happened. But I thought we might talk about Westerns in general here and also revisionist Westerns. Why do you think Westerns were so popular, especially during the 30s to the 50s? And how do you think they've changed starting in the 1960s? Wow. Well, I, I think that's a big question. Yeah, I think that Westerns and I think this really comes to mind, especially when we look at these two films and especially maybe your pick. I've always seen them as being American mythology. I mean, there's a lot of truth, of course, but at the same time, it's like our mythic characters. There's something that's captivating about this part of history that seems somewhat familiar, but also so far away. The lawlessness and the anything goes type of things that 
happen in this era of history, the colorful characters. And I know for me personally, I didn't grow up watching a lot of Westerns. My wife always gives me a hard time about it because her dad was Western junk. He used to sit her down and watch Westerns all the time. So she's much more well-versed in Westerns. But in recent years, I've really started to try to watch more Westerns. And I think part of it for me is the last 25 years or so of my life, I've lived in Colorado where Western history is a big part of our lives here. You go to a local 4th of July celebration or things like that. There's a lot of Western elements to what we do here in Colorado. And being a part of that has kind of moved me to say, I've got to investigate this more myself, even if it's on that more mythical level that we get in films. So I think they're endlessly intriguing. Well, I shouldn't agree with you that Westerns are a myth and they were a mythic explanation of how the West was one. But also movies that take place in the past are almost never about the past. Mm -hmm. They're always about the present. And so are Westerns. They're more than comments on the past. They're also comments about who we see ourselves at the times that they were made. And like most myths, of course, they aren't true. The major myth is that Westerns represent a civilized force taming the chaos of the West. That's not totally untrue. These were territories that were eventually going to be turned into states. And if that was to happen, then there needed to be a lot of changes. You know, mm-hmm. had to get rid of the outlaws or bring them under control. You had to bring civilization to the West, but not because of Native Americans. They weren't the ones causing the chaos. It was the other white people, the mm-hmm. outlaws, who were causing chaos. But yeah. the Native Americans had to be eradicated and tamed and made irrelevant to the future of the West. And out of this, we were familiar tropes and some of the negative storylines and portrayals. I do remember that in the 60s, when movie westerns started dying out for various reasons, the western moved to television, as this often happens. Right. And its genre is dying out in movies, it goes to television. At one point, there were so many western series that they had a special category for best western at the Emmys. <laughs> But in the movie theaters, because of the Vietnam War and we were starting to reevaluate ourselves and you have the growing civil rights movements, they couldn't keep selling the same old myths anymore. And the Westerns really changed during that era, too. If I think of 70s Western, things like McCabe and Mrs. Miller is what comes to mind. Very different feel than either one of the films we're talking about today. Movies like Little Big Man. And even Sergio Leone's Westerns were certainly a lot more violent, and you had central characters in them. The heroes were not necessarily the nice guys either. Why did you choose this film? Tombstone, it's a movie that always sucks me in. If it pops on, it's one that is going to keep me watching it. It's a movie that does that thing we were talking about, where it creates this colorful mythology to these historical figures. I think it's also playing with a lot of the things we were seeing in the 90s cinema, the violence. When I boil it down, I go, well, Tombstone's like an exploitation film, gussied up for the 90s and put into a Western package. (laughs) That's a really good observation. Also, it's always intrigued me how this film continues to be the crowd pleaser and the one that people talk about and go to. The other Wyatt Earp movie from the same year, which was much more the prestige picture, has kind of vanished from the pop culture mindset. I watched Lawrence Kasdan's Wyatt Earp once upon a time, and I don't remember a whole heck of a lot about it. Tombstone, I could quote back and forth, you know. 
When did you first see it? I didn't see it in theaters, but I think I probably saw it when it made its debut on VHS a few months later. So probably sometime in the early part of 1994. And do you think it still holds up? Oh, yeah. I think it's endlessly entertaining. You can certainly pick apart all sorts of different aspects of the film that may work or don't work. But like I said, it sucks me in every time. I first saw it, I think, a couple of years ago. I can't remember exactly when. My memory is that I had a friend over from movie night. It caught his interest to watch it. And I think this is now my second viewing of the movie. There are a lot of things I like about it. I certainly think it's a beautiful movie to look at. Art and set decoration, the costumes are excellent. I appreciate Westerns that aren't, I want to say, primitive. Like we'll get into, in a way, with My Darling Clementine, where it feels like everything is really behind the times. Mm -hmm. And it's a very small town and it's dirty and dusty and there's nothing much there. Whereas in this one, for its time and where it was located, it's a very modern town. I have to be honest, though, it's not one of my favorite Westerns, and we'll get into reasons for that later. But what are some of your favorite scenes? Oh, let me think here. I like a lot of the moments between various colorful characters. And I guess the first one that's going to come to mind, of course, is Val Kilmer. I think he's the person that everyone always talks about with this movie, playing Doc Holliday. There are a lot of great moments where he has interactions with the Earps, but also more so with the villains. The first scene that comes to mind is the one where where it's shortly after the Earps have come to Tombstone and they've set up shop in this saloon. They're running the little gambling operation. The cowboys come in, start to try to throw their weight around and taunt Doc Holliday. Michael Bean's character, Johnny Ringo, does this whole thing with the twirling of the guns and such. And then Val Kilmer's response to that is to twirl his cup that he uses to keep himself in a permanent state of inebriation. <laughs> I guess that's a very fun scene and very clever. And we'll certainly talk more about Velcomer later. I do like the scene with Billy Bob Thornton, though. Sometimes I wonder it's because I'm going, that's Billy Bob Thornton's <laughs> voice. But he seems so much shorter and thicker than Billy Bob Thornton <laughs> in real life. So I kept wondering, was it me or something? I don't know what was going on there. But it was a very entertaining scene. And Billy Bob Thornton was very good. There's so many moments in this movie where you go, that's Billy Bob Thornton. Or that's Billy Zane. Or that's Jason Priestley. There's all these people in this movie that pop up. It's got such a dense cast. But that scene with Billy Bob Thornton is great because it's a good moment for Kurt Russell. It kind of plays into to what you were saying earlier about how we think about our Western heroes. Look at that scene. Wyatt Earp's being a bit of a bully. As nasty as Billy Bob Thornton's character is, Wyatt Earp's not being a whole heck of a lot better. And it seems, well, none of these guys are folks that I'd really like to pal around with because they all seem like they're not the greatest human beings to ever walk the face of the earth. I'm glad you said that because in a way, that's what I was also feeling. I'm going, well, I am on the Earp's side because the cowboys are are such villainous villains. At the same time, they're bullies too. They just happen to be on my side. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I'm not sure I like bullies even if they're on my side. That doesn't <laughs> really comfort me. So I think you're right. I don't think I would like to know these people in real life. I also like the opening scene. The opening scene sets up a lot of the conflict. It's very one done. The shootout at the wedding. And I watch that and I go, they're tapping into a lot of other Westerns. When I see them showing up at a wedding, causing trouble, I think of the Magnificent Seven, you know. <laughs> it's pure Sergio Leone. And that scene also really sets the tone. This is a Western that's purely for the 90s. 
that opening sequence, you really see some nasty stuff. One of the moments that always makes me shudder with that is after they've killed the groom and then they drag the bride off, the cowboys just start sitting around and eating the food. And then you hear a gunshot in the background. It just makes me shiver every time. It was directed, well, let's say it was credited, the direction yeah. was, to George P. Cosmatos. But you also thought, what a terrible name to have, because you just take out the S, and that just might end up defining who you are. Um, <laughs> it did start out with Kevin Shari, the writer, directing it. But they felt he was quickly overwhelmed to the job, so they replaced him. But... A lot of people claim that it was actually Kurt Russell, that Cosmetos was simply a ghost director. Kurt Russell was the one who was doing all the direction, but from behind the scenes, not so much out in front. So that's why there's some conflict over that. Like Westerns themselves, there's a lot of legends surrounding the behind the scenes of this movie. I've heard stories of that. It was Sylvester Stallone that suggested Cosmetos because they've worked together a lot. And he and Kurt Russell were buddies from Tango and Cash. And so he was, George can be a front for you. There's stories about how they had secret signals that Russell would pass to Cosmetos' way. Just like any Western, it's like, well, how much is true? How much isn't? I don't know. Nobody's talking. Nobody's telling. But it's entertaining (laughs) to read about. One of the things I thought, Cosmetos followed the road of many foreign directors. He's a Greek Italian. Had an early hit in his home country with a movie called Massacre in Rome. Was brought to Hollywood and started making schlock. Mm -hmm. Cassandra Crossing, Escape to Athena, Rambo 2, Cobra. The thing is, Tombstone is probably his best film. So that, in some ways, gives me credence to think that he probably didn't have a big hand (laughs) in directing it. Yeah, you may be right. It's much better than these other films he made. But whoever directed it, what do you think of the directing? I think it does a decent job. Let me put it that way. I think there's a lot to juggle here. That'd be a challenge for any director. There's a part of me that says, I don't know how much of what I enjoy about the film I can credit to whoever directed it. If anything, I think some of the actors are given a lot of freedom, and I like that. Kurt Russell doing his own thing. Val Kilmer, certainly. The film is certainly, like you said, really beautiful to look at. There's a lot of great visuals. It's a very colorful film. Again, I don't know how much of that I can give to whoever directed it, or did we just have a really capable cinematographer? With all that's muddled about who actually was behind the camera, I don't know that I can say that the direction is the strongest aspect, but I think the various elements do come together to certainly create something that's quite entertaining. Well, it was a very ambitious film because it tries to cover more of the story than is usually covered. It's much more detailed. It covers a much larger period of time. The screenplay is by Kevin Shari, and apparently it was much, much longer. And you can Um, tell there are threads that are not fully realized in what we have here. Kurt Russell, I think, was one of the people who came in and said, we really have to focus this a lot more. But what do you think of Jari's approach to the legend, the myth, about what he brings to the myth and how he interprets the story? I certainly like that they do try to bring as much quote-unquote history as they can into it. It is interesting that they have all these other characters that were personalities in Tombstone in that region. We get bits and pieces of their story. If I do have a complaint, it does get a little bit too much at times, but I do find it interesting to see a bit about Curly Bill Brocious or the sheriff in Tombstone before Wyatt Earp took over. These are actual people that they're based on. Again, 
how much of it is true what they're showing here, I don't know, but they're are certainly bits and pieces. And as I have looked at some things after viewings of this, I can see, oh yeah, all right. They've thrown that element in there or that little bit of history in here that helps create a bigger picture of the legend. But perhaps they bit off more than they could chew and they do their best to pare it down. Yes, I think the ambition may have got a little ahead of them. I also, though, for me, to be honest, and full disclosure, first half seems to be a bit flat. I think it all depends on how you find the love story. And the love story never did really excite me very much. I always Mm. found the supporting characters or the supporting male characters to be much more interesting than the Kurt Russell, is it Dana Delaney, who plays the actress? That love story didn't really interest me. The second half is more vigorous, but all that is happening here is you're getting rid of these people, and it seems to take a long time. (laughs) Well, and that's the thing. That's where, in some ways, the history gets in the way because they are trying to be more truthful to how these different Western figures came to their ends. They don't just have everybody die in the gunfight at the OK Corral because that's not what happened. They went and and chased down Curly Bill and they chased down Johnny Ringo and Ike Clanton, who of all the villains, I mean, there's so many villains in this, but Ike Clanton's my favorite one here. He's such a scumbag and a coward. He gets away because, well, that's the way it actually happened. But it does seem a little strange where you have all this buildup to them getting Curly Bill. And then we have to switch to all this buildup to get Johnny Ringo. And then they're chasing down Ike Clanton at the end and he gets away. And it's kind of like, well, wait a second. That's not the way a Western's supposed to end. (laughs) I will say, and we'll get into this more in the second half, is that plot-wise, the story is more accurate to history than My Darling Clementine, which, as we'll see, bears very little uh, resemblance to actual history. This, the plot does. There are other things that absolutely don't, but the general outline of the plot does follow the history of it. But this is 1993. Earp here is a reluctant hero. He doesn't really want to get involved. And in a certain way, this also makes him an existential hero. He has to make a decision as to how he is going to define himself. And that's what existentialists do. They make a decision. And here he makes the decision to be a lawman and bring harmony to the Old West. As I said earlier, historical movies, movies set in the past, are never about the past. So I wondered if you have any thoughts about what this movie might be saying about America in the 1990s. started to think about that as I was doing more research on My Darling Clementine. I think there's more that's clear about that and what John Ford was thinking. It's hard for me to remember. I had just gotten married and was starting my own life outside of my parents' house. We're coming off of the first Gulf War and things like that, but I don't know. I'm not seeing that type of a relationship here. Your guess is as good as mine. Well, I think my guess is as good as yours because I'm not quite sure either. And that might be one of the issues with the movie why, for me, it doesn't quite hold together because I'm not sure that what Kevin Shari was trying to say originally, if he was trying to say something, fully comes through. I don't think of America as a reluctant empire in the 1990s. Vietnam War is long over. Yeah, I'm not sure about that either. Kevin Jari never could quite reach success. I mean, he kept trying and he kept trying. His best screenplay is probably Glory, about the Civil War and the first black infantry. Though he also wrote The Mummy, which I enjoyed very much. I really oh, like The Mummy. Talk about an entertaining film. Yeah, that, that's, yes. that's, that's fun. But he never quite broke through. 
But you mentioned Val Kilmer. Everybody says, and I agree, that Val Kilmer steals the movie. I'm not a big Val Kilmer fan. I've never exactly thought he was that good an actor. But sometimes when you give an actor something that takes him outside of himself, it can sometimes free himself to be better than he usually is. So here, Val Kimmer, and I think some of this was his idea, becomes a Southern gentleman with a rather nice Southern accent and obviously from the educated classes, uh, suffering from tuberculosis. That's not Val Kimmer's idea, of course. That's what it was in real life. And he also has some of the funniest, most entertaining lines. So I think, yes, Val Kimmer steals the movie. There are so many quotable moments in this film, and I think the vast majority of them are Val Kilmer. I'm kind of with you in terms of Val Kilmer has never been an actor that I would put up there as someone who I have really been all that interested in seeing. But this is a film where he is definitely putting himself aside. When I think of Val Kilmer, I think he's an actor that if I see him, he's always Val Kilmer. And here he vanishes. I love it when an actor totally catches me off guard and I forget who I'm watching there. One of the things I love about the way that he plays Doc Holliday here, you know, this is a stark contrast to the performance we're going to get in the next film. He's clearly a guy that's at death's door. It's well known in movies that when characters are dying, they hardly ever look like they're dying. He looks like he's dying. And he's got a death wish, too. That's part of what makes it all work. This is a character who realizes he is not long for this world. So he's going to do whatever he feels like he needs to do. And if it means a bullet ends up between his eyes, so be it. He does have that one line. I probably can't get it right. When someone asks him why he's doing what he's doing, and he says it's because White Earp is his friend, and the other person says, I have lots of friends. Val Gummer says, I don't. Yeah. And I thought that was actually a rather moving and I think that idea of the friendship and camaraderie between Wyatt Earp and Doc Holliday is very strong in this. There's lots of other examples of this relationship played out. Kirk Douglas and Burt Lancaster, you know, all kinds of different folks have played this dynamic. In this version, I definitely get a feeling of the connection between these two historical figures. And in that way, Val Kilmer is also playing an existential hero because he has to decide what defines himself in life. And what defines him is his friendship mm-hmm. with I find the supporting characters, the male supporting characters, to be far more interesting than even, I have to say, Kurt Russell. I think the other Earp brothers are a lot more interesting. It's like a revolving door of supporting characters going in and out. Tons of people that we know today, when it's hard to pick a favorite from a supporting cast, I do find the women to be far less interesting. They're not as well acted. They're not as well developed. That's a Western, isn't it? (laughs) But they are part of history. They are part of what happened. Even Dana Delaney as Josephine Marcus, I don't get a lot coming from her. I think the relationship between Doc Holliday and Wyatt Earp is far more interesting than the relationship between Wyatt Earp and this character. I would Um, even say, if we want to talk female characters, the relationship between Doc Holliday and the girl that follows him around is more interesting than the relationship between Kurt Russell and Dana Delaney. I find it intriguing this woman who feels she has to so dutifully follow Doc around as he causes trouble from one town to the next. That's a much more interesting dynamic. I think you're certainly 
right. I also think that it's interesting that there's a gay relationship in the movie, though it, for many people it might be very subtle. Mm-hmm. But to me, it's just very obviously that Billy Zane and, as Mr. Fabian and the Jason Priestley character and then Billy are obviously involved in a relationship. I'm quickly involved in one. I just don't know how else you could define what they do. And in fact, Billy at the end, when Mr. Fabian is shot and killed, says, that's it. I'm out of here. I can't do this anymore. I think that's one of the threads of the movie where you can tell they chipped away at some things there. Was it because it was portraying that type of relationship in a Western? I don't know. These are a couple of side characters that are not as crucial to the rest of the plot. There are elements where you see Jason Priestley's character come back into the movie and you go, oh, wait a second. Where was he all this time? There's just things that he does that tells you that there's things that ended up on the cutting room floor there. I think you're right. This was a minor relationship. This was a subplot. It doesn't really add that much to the story as a whole. In fact, if they took out Billy Zane and Jason Priestley completely, none of the plot would really change. I do like Billy Zane's character. You know, just the idea that Tombstone is this town where they see themselves as they're going to be this boom town. They're going to be the next San Francisco, I think someone says at one point. They bring in these actors that are doing these productions and such. He's up there delivering a a soliloquy and the cowboys love it (laughs) you don't expect that these guys that are out there shooting each other the rest of the day are in there loving this great theatrical performance i think that's a great element that helps paint the fuller picture of the western landscape yes i think people don't realize that in western days more people probably knew shakespeare than they do today Uh probably taught more in the schools the only real problem i have with that scene is billy zane only does like five lines from the (laughs) yeah So I'm not sure I really believe that it affected the audience because he doesn't really give this great speech, which could be very effective because it's one of the great speeches from Shakespeare. We were talking about some of the technical aspects. I thought the cinematography was really quite incredible. If anything, I think it's probably one of the things I miss the most in My Darling Clementine, seeing these widescreen scenes of the West that I think are absolutely gorgeous. I agree. There's a lot of great photography in this. I love how colorful Tombstone is. It's such a contrast. It's a movie that is very dark in a lot of the themes and a lot of the things we see portrayed on screen. But there's this wonderful vibrancy and color to the photography. Besides the huge panoramas, one of the best series of scenes is during the thunderstorm and the lightning. Oh, absolutely. That's marvelously photographed, where it goes from bright to dark, bright to dark, and it gives quite a mood. That whole sequence plays well with the visuals, the way they do that with the lightning and the rain and such. It's very unsettling, and of course, that's the scene where a lot of the important characters get gunned down. That's one of the scenes I always think of as well, thinking back to when this was made in the 90s. That's one of the the scenes that gets the bloodiest and the most graphic where I go, oh yeah, this is the era where Tarantino was coming to the forefront. The cinematographer was William A. Fraker and he did some quite notable films. He is the first rate cinematographer. He did Steven Spielberg's 1941, Warren Beatty's Seven Can Wait. He did Bullet and Rosemary's Baby. Perhaps he never quite rose to the top level of cinematographers, but he's right there near the top. 
I will say too, I really like the score. It's a uh, Bruce Broughton score. And I think again, it has echoes of the classic Western scores of the past. It's one that I've got on CD and definitely is it's a fun, rousing musical experience. He's probably best known for Silverado. I believe he got an Oscar nomination for that score. But with that, here's some more information about the movie. It cost $25 million to make and made $56.5 million at the box office. So the film was a financial success. For the Western genre, it ranks number 16 in the list of highest grossing films since 1979. Cowboy, a term which was generally used in that region to refer to a loose association of outlaws, some of whom also were landowners and ranchers. It kind of throws you off at first, but that is how cowboy was used then. Legitimate cowmen were referred to as cattle herders or ranchers. Kevin Shawry, the writer, is the adopted son of Maurice Shawry, the great film composer. In the early 1990s, he dated Lisa Zane, whom he based the part of Josephine Marcus on. Her younger brother, Billy Zane, is in the movie as the actor. Shawry directed the Charlton Heston scenes, which are still in the movie. I was waiting for you to mention Charlton Heston, because I know how you feel about Charlton Heston. <laughs> yes, but he's barely in the movie. I went, yeah. <laughs> okay, there's Charlton Heston. I suspect he had a much bigger part yeah, originally, yeah. and that's probably one of the things that did get cut down. When the herbs first enter Tombstone, a grave marker in the cemetery says, here lies Lister Moore, four slugs from a 44, no less, no more. This is a real-life tombstone in Tombstone, Arizona. It's been on display for at least 60 years. Lester Moore was a Wells Fargo agent murdered in Naco, Arizona. And as we'll mention again in the next one, White Earp became a consultant to the motion picture industry, advising on Westerns after he moved to Hollywood in 1950. He frequently visited the sets of several silent films directed by John Ford, whose name will be mentioned again soon, and starring Harry Carey. And Harry Carey Jr. plays the sheriff who is killed in Tombstone. Then Robert Mitchum was signed on to star as Old Man Clanton. Prior to principal photography, he fell from his horse and injured his back, forcing him to quit the part. And instead, Mitchum provides the narration at the beginning and end of the film. I will say I love the last line of the narration that closes the movie, where he talks about Wyatt Earp lived till, what, 1929 or something and yes. lived in Hollywood, and that early Western stars were his pallbearers. And the final line of the movie is, Tom Mix wept. With that, let's get to my selection, and that is My Darling Clementine. First, some information about the film. My Darling Clementine is an American Western released in 1946. It was directed by John Ford and written by Samuel G. Ingle and Winston Miller from a story by Sam Hellman, based on the 1931 novel Wyatt Earp, Frontier Marshal by Stuart N. Lake. It stars Henry Fonda, Linda Darnell, Victor Mature, Kathy Downs, Walter Brennan, Tim Holt, Ward Bond, Don Garner, Grant Withers, John Ireland, Alan Mowbray, Roy Roberts, Jane Darwell, J. Farrell McDonald, Russell Simpson, and Charles Stevens. Wyatt Earp and his brothers are driving cattle to California to make their fortune. While three of the brothers go to town, a local family, the Clantons, wrestle the cattle and kill the youngest brother. Wyatt then takes the job as sheriff of Tombstone and with his brothers promises to clean up the town and bring the murderers of his brother to justice, leading to a showdown at the OK Corral. And before beginning here, I thought we might talk about various aspects of the myth and the reality and how in many ways both movies are historically accurate and historically inaccurate because <laughs> in many ways both films are a bunch of baloney <laughs> <laughs> they're both a complete whitewash of Wyatt Earp's life that doesn't necessarily make the films any better or less as film but they are also pure myth it's sort of easier to understand why Ford does this because before 1931 no one really knew who Wyatt Earp was but two years after he died Stuart Inlake published his sort of novelish 
history, Wyatt Earp Frenchel Marshall. But the novel was heavily influenced by Earp's widow, who made sure there wasn't really anything negative about her husband. In addition, Earp was the last surviving brother, so he tended to make everything all about him because there wasn't anybody to really argue it. Mm -hmm. But that was 1947, just after the war, based on a 1931 book when people didn't know all that much about Earp. By 1993, we did know a lot more. There were still two other books full of myths that later turned out to be almost complete hoaxes. One supposedly written by his wife, and it wasn't one supposedly written by a journalist at the time. Both written by the same man who totally made up the books almost completely. But even in 1928, Billy Breckenridge published his memoirs of life in Tombstone, titled Hotel Dorado, Bringing the Law to Mesquite. And there, White Earp was portrayed as a thief, pimp, crooked gambler, and murderer, which is actually much closer <laughs> to what White Earp really was. So why do you think that Kevin Shawree and even Kurt Russell wanted to continue the myth of White Earp rather than try to create a more realistic Well, what was that quote that you said at the beginning about how the myth overtakes things? The myth is more interesting. You got to put butts in the seats, right? (laughs) There are differences between the movies. There are a lot of differences, but there are a couple of major differences. The most notable is that in My Darling Clementine, the gunfight at the OK Corral resolves the issue. That's the end of the film. Whereas in Tombstone, it sort of starts the feud. It doesn't quite start it, but it escalates it to the point where it has to be taken care of. So in many ways, it starts something rather than in something. And also, as in Tombstone, Doc Holliday did apparently save White Earp's life once, and they did know each other long before Holliday ended up in Tombstone. In this version, basically, we see White Earp meet Doc Holliday for the first time. And yeah, that's not the way it happened. Right. But there are some other historical visions going on. For example, the shootout didn't happen at the OK Corral. (laughs) Yeah. Why would it, right? (laughs) It was at a vacant lot behind it. And it was not even known as the gunfight at the OK Corral until after the 1957 movie. One big thing is Wyatt Earp was never a sheriff anywhere. He was a constable, police officer. He was an assistant city marshal. He was a deputy, but never, ever did he ever become sheriff. Mm. In fact, according to a documentary of him on PBS, not only was he never sheriff of Tombstone, he ran constantly for the job, but was always defeated. So he always remained a deputy. And then he eventually ran off with the sheriff's wife and they ended up in Los Angeles, where, as I said, Earp worked in the movie industry and did other odd professions. But also before reaching Tombstone, Earp, as well as his brothers, was a pimp and ran brothels. But <laughs> the wives in the movie were all ex-prostitutes. And they're yeah, common they law. Kind of hint at that in Tombstone, don't they? Because I think there's a line where I think Bill Paxton says to Sam Elliott, where do you suppose he found her? And he says something like, well, same place we found ours, I'm sure. When I heard that line, I thought, are they saying that they're prostitutes? Yeah, because yeah, I mean, because yeah, our brothers were pimps and ran brothels. Earth was tr- constantly in trouble for stealing from the government and doing other shady dealings. And it was actually Virgil who was the central character in this story. He was the U.S. Marshal for the Arizona Territory when they arrived in Tombstone. In the movie, he becomes 
the sheriff of Tombstone, but I'm not sure that happened in real life. But he's actually really the central character in the story, not Wyatt, but Wyatt was the last brother left alive, so Wyatt had the last word. Two other quick things. In real life, Colonel Bill Rushes is not charged with the murder of the Marshal Fred Wright. There were no witnesses to the shooting, and prior to his death, Marshal Wyatt explained the shooting was an accident, that the gun was defective and went off accidentally. However, Earp and his brothers were taken to court for murder after the OK Corral gunfight because the Cowboys denied they shot first. Some claim they had no guns, but the case was dismissed due to too much conflicting territory. So now that I've got the lecture out of the way, <laughs> let's get back to the film and what did you think of the pairing of the two films it was a great contrast it's interesting to see two stories that are dealing with the same figures some similar elements there's such different films I think a tombstone it's violent it's an exploitation film in a western package my darling Clementine this was my first time watching it after watching it I was like well that's just such a lovely film <laughs> you know what I mean <laughs> I can't argue with that. <laughs> Certainly an accurate description of the movie. <laughs> There's, of course, the elements of the bad blood between Wyatt Earp and the Clantons. There's certainly some moments of violence and all this, but there's two distinct parts to My Darling Clementine. There's the Western rivalry, the bad blood and such, and it's almost completely separate from this very sweet little love story. <laughs> Which is, of course, not based on fact. However, it is inspired by something true. When Doc Holliday was back east, a cousin of his did fall in love with him, and they did write until the day he died, but she never followed him out. So it does seem there was an unrequited love, which in the movie they actually use as a plot point. What did you think of the movie? I thought it was beautiful. Of course, with John Ford movie, the visuals are going to be the, one of the main things that stick with you. There's just so many moments in this film where the composition of the shots, the great views of Monument Valley, you know, which is really the, like 200 to 300 miles away from <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> There's just such a, an attention to detail when it comes to the way the shots are put together. In so many ways, it's more a visual film than anything else. It'd be interesting almost to watch it without the audio just to take in the scenery. I think you'd probably still get a pretty good idea of what's going on just from that. But I think there's also a lot of interesting elements to this when it comes to the Western story, that rivalry between Wyatt and the Clantons. There were some moments in this that really caught me off guard when things really ramp up as we're leading up to the gunfight at the OK Corral. There's some moments of shocking violence that just got to me. Of course, when it comes to the performances, seeing Henry Fonda and Victor Mature, their takes on these characters versus what we're getting out of Kurt Russell and Val Kilmer in the other film, it's such a different approach. With Henry Fonda here, it's much more of the the more traditional, the Western good guy. He's trying to save the town of Tombstone. We talked earlier about the idea of bringing civilization to the West. That's what he's doing here. He's the messiah of the West here, essentially. I think all of what you say is true. I probably saw it in college. I've seen it maybe three times since. 
I loved it when I first saw it, and it's become one of my favorite of John Ford's films. I know people put The Searchers at the top. I have a lot of issues with The Searchers, but we won't go into that. I find this one and a Ford Apache to be better westerns, and Stagecoach, of course, which is one of the mm. richest westerns ever made. Yeah. Sometimes I do think his westerns do feel a bit dated. We know more about what it was really like out west, but I'm with you. It's a very beautiful film, not just in the way it looks, but in some of the emotion it provokes. What are some of your favorite scenes? I think my mind immediately goes to the climax, to the gunfight, the OK Corral. Just the image of Henry Fonda walking down the main street of Tombstone with, again, Monument Valley in the background, that horizon off there, this lone figure coming straight towards the camera. It's just such a beautiful moment. And then the way that the gunfight plays out is done really, really well. We didn't talk much about the gunfight itself in the previous movie. And in Tombstone, it's it's all guns blazing. Again, it's the 90s. It's a different feel to things. There's something that's so symphonic about the way that it's put together in this film that is just beautiful. Yes, I can't argue with that. (laughs) Um, It is a worthy climax. I have two scenes, especially. The first one is, for me, even more of a highlight in many ways than the gunfight. And that's the dance at the church. Oh, beautiful scene. (laughs) If you give Ford music and a dance, and his movies always tend to transcend. And here also, it's very symbolic because this is where White Earp is definitely going along with civilization. He's supporting the idea of bringing a church. Now, the church has no pastor. We don't know what religion it is. It doesn't matter. The church is a symbol of civilization. That's all that is important for there. But he takes Clementine to the dance, and he does this wonderful dance as everybody watches him. The other scene that I like is when Ike Clanton whips his sons. He is such a psychopath, and he just goes after his son for getting caught, for getting bested. The look in his eyes and the fury that he shows. And that's one of those unexpected bits of violence that just suddenly is there. I'll jump in with this right now, since we're talking about old man Clinton. Walter Brennan may be my favorite performance of the film. You're right. He's just psychotic, and yet you're kind of like, well, it's lovable Walter Brennan. He's nasty in this. When I was mentioning how there's some moments of shocking violence in this what you just said is one of them for sure but the moment where he guns down one of Wyatt's brothers as we're leading up to the gunfight his brother's there almost to in some ways extend an olive branch and he turns to leave and Brennan just shoots him in the back I I jumped out of my seat Brennan delivers a wonderful performance in this but going back to what you're talking about the church dance such a beautiful scene Wyatt Earp is accepting becoming civilized in that moment. He's becoming a part of a community. He's been a loner up to this point. He's standing there on the outskirts of the dance awkwardly trying to get up the courage to ask this girl who clearly has eyes for him to dance. Finally, one moment then just says, well, all right. He tosses his hat aside and asks her to dance and then starts dancing around the crowd all clapping. And it's the most awkward dance you've ever seen in your life. Yet you just see the facade coming down and he's almost becoming human for the first time. Exactly. Are you a fan of John Ford? 
I am. I admit that I still have a lot of blind spots when it comes to him because, I mean, the man directed, geez, how many movies? Over a hundred, I think. Fifty, some of them are westerns. There's a lot of spots I still need to fill in, but every time you watch one of his movies, there's something captivating about what he brings. He was a true master. He didn't want to make the movie, but his contract required him to make one more movie for 20th Century Fox. I am a fan of Ford. I don't go to him as often as I go to other directors at that period, like Hitchcock, Houston, and even Howard Hawks. Maybe because I feel the way he sees America in the past, as I said, might be becoming a bit more dated, but he was one of the greats Mm -hmm. in the golden age of Hollywood. The Variety reviewer wrote, The trademark of John Ford's direction is clearly stamped on the film with its shadowy lights, softly contrasted moods, and measured pace. But a tendency is discernible towards stylization for the sake of stylization. At several points, the pick comes to a dead stop to let Ford go gunning for some arty effect. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly true here. There are a lot of quiet moments in this film where he's letting the image speak for itself, where if you really look at it, you go, well, there's not really much happening in that sequence, but he's doing it so beautifully. (laughs) He himself said that because of its optimism and simple idealism, he thought of the film as, quote, as essentially a film for children. John Ford sometimes was, I think, a little harsh on some of the films he made. I think I saw some things as I was trying to do a little bit of research here. I watched this because I got the Criterion Collection DVD from the library of this. In some of the bonus features and commentaries and such, they were talking about how Ford didn't necessarily look back super fondly on this one. And they talked about how there's an alternate version. They called it the preview version that actually came out a few months before uh, the movie was released. I think it was, uh, was it Daryl Zanuck? You know, actually went and reshot some stuff. And Ford and Zanuck had a good relationship. They trusted each other, but there were some things that Zanuck changed that were not the same as what Ford had put in his original cut of the film this was the one that he was probably most at odds with when it came to the producer and then you know they did lock heads on some of the things but it is one of my favorite of his westerns sometimes i think it's more underrated than i realize because more and more people who are into john ford have never seen it and some people have never heard of it i come from the period in the 70s and 80s when this was a major john ford film and now it's not really brought up as much maybe because The Rise of the Searchers has just overshadowed so many other Mm -hmm. films John Ford made. The screenplay is by Samuel G. Ingle. It's probably his best screenplay, but he was more successful as a producer. He tended to produce schlock, though often very entertaining and high-quality schlock, but he had more notable films as a producer than a writer. Winston Miller is the same. He was a contract writer. They constantly work, but were never quite notable. But I do think this is probably their best screenplay. I'm not sure why this is more interesting than a lot of the others, but here, I think, as you said, it's It's a bit easier to see what they were trying to say about America at the time and how it saw itself. First, the book was written at the beginning of the Depression, and then this was written just after World War II. So America was seeing itself as in a need for heroes. They had overcome the evil in Europe and in the Pacific. This idea of this hero taming and and bringing civilization to a land that hasn't really seen civilization for quite some time, I could see as being very relevant. This earth is no existential crisis. He knows exactly who he is. There's no conflict going on inside him. 
I found it interesting too. His attitude, he's got a job to do, basically. His younger brother is killed. He takes the job of sheriff of Tombstone and basically says, I'm just doing this until I get the guys that killed my brother. Right. And he does. He moves on at the end, which, of course, did not happen that way in history. He stayed in Tombstone until he ran off with the sheriff's wife. They went around doing things like basically wider for someone who was always trying to make his fortune during his life. And when something didn't pay off, then he would move someplace else to try to make his fortune there. He never quite made his fortune, but he was always trying to. But you did mention Walter Brennan, and I agree. Walter Brennan steals this show. He's the alchemer of this movie. (laughs) I have the strange history of Walter Brennan because when I was growing up in the 60s, all I knew of Walter Brennan was this show called The Real McCoys, uh-huh. where he plays this sort of what we would now call, they were farmers, but sort of in the South, not quite white trash, but those sort of people. They were much smarter, much more together than the hillbillies, but it was that sort of show. Walter Brennan was playing this sweet but cantankerous grandfather show, and that's how I saw Walter Brennan. And I never thought he was a particularly good actor. Then all of a sudden, I see to have and have not which is probably his greatest performance, where he is playing this alcoholic, but he's pretty much a lost cause as an alcoholic. And then you start watching all these other films. He's often the best thing in these films. Mm. He plays a variety of characters. I had this whole change when it came to Walter Brennan. He's got a wonderful voice. He's got a wonderfully expressive face. When he's introduced in this movie, I love that at first he seems like a jovial, friendly guy. He's welcoming these guys to Tombstone. But then you could tell that as soon as Henry Fonda exits the conversation that the wheels are turning and you go, oh, there is something sinister behind that grin. As the movie continues, Walter Brennan proves to be a cold-blooded, nasty guy this movie and it's one of those times where you're ashamed to admit you love the villain more than yes. the heroes i think you have a point he's so evil that you find him much more interesting and intriguing than the others because henry fonda is pretty straightforward he's henry fonda he does what he usually does he's very good i'm not a fan of victor mature so he doesn't really impress me in this movie he certainly is no val kilmer in this movie <laughs> well, always, uh, victor mature is the prettiest dying man that you've ever seen in this there's always a wonderful story where Victor Mature is trying to get into a very excluded uh, neighborhood, I think in Beverly Hills, where he wanted to buy a house. But you had to be approved by the neighborhood. They told him, I'm sorry, we don't want any actors here. And Victor Mature said, I'm no actor, and I have a book of reviews to prove it. <laughs> But he was a big movie star. He has a great face and everything like that. I see a lot of people praising him in the movie, but I have no idea why. I think the performance is fine, but my background with the Doc Holliday character comes more from Val Kilmer's. It seems to me like a very prettied up, Hollywood performance. Again, this is a character who's supposed to be a bit of a nasty guy. He's got a reputation. He's at death's door, supposedly. You don't get that at all, except for the occasional cough. I also find it funny because, again, I don't claim to be a great historian, but I do know enough to know that Doc Holliday was a dentist not a surgeon, which he ends up being a surgeon in this movie. Yes, they did play fast and loose. I think the women also don't quite come off quite as well as the men. Linda 
Darnell was never the greatest of actresses, and here she's playing a Latina, not very convincingly. I did like her in certain moments. There's a few times where she's up against Henry Fonda. There's that iconic moment here where Henry Fonda is leaning back in the chair and he's pushing against the pole with his feet and balancing on the back legs of the chair. And she's in the background. She you know, huffs off in disgust in that because it's almost like he's making fun of hers. There's some good moments there. But the moment where she is dying herself, Doc Holliday has to do a surgery. And it's strange. They have these shots of her face. He's just lying there angelically. It doesn't look at all like she's about to die. I know. But she's also a symbol of the dying of the Old West. I mean, she's a prostitute. She's disguised as a singer in a saloon, but we're not fooled. We know exactly uh, what she is. And it's also a very different portrayal than in Tombstone, this woman in Doc Holliday's life. Much more interesting in Tombstone than here. We were talking about cinematography and how wonderful that was. And it is. It is a beautiful looking movie. The cinematographer was Joseph Patrick Joe McDonald. He was actually Mexican-born. He worked in Hollywood from the 1920s, became a cinematographer in the 1940s, mostly worked to 20th Century Fox. He was the first Mexican-born cinematographer and only the second after all, after Leon Shamroll, to film a movie in Cinemascope, which was How to Marry a Millionaire, as well as the first Mexican-born cinematographer to film a movie in deluxe color. He was a very good studio cinematographer. He received three Oscar nominations for Pepe, The Sand Pebbles, and the Young Lions. I think like the cinematographer of Tombstone, which was a William F. Faker, he never quite rose to the top level, but was almost there. And he constantly worked. It was very well known. It was very successful. And it is a very beautiful looking movie. No question about that. Well, with that, here's some more information about the film. The film cost $2 million to make and made $2,750,000 in U.S. rentals. The film was selected to the National Film Registry in the Library of Congress in 1991. Director Sam Peckinpah considered My Darling Clementine his favorite Western. He paid homage to it in some of his Westerns, including Major Dundee and The Wild Bunch. It was also Harry Truman's favorite film, and it was the favorite film of Colonel Henry Potter in the television series MASH. Ah, yes. <laughs> in the British Film Institute's 2012 Sight and Sound poll, seven critics and five directors named it one of their top ten favorite films. Upon leaving Tombstone, the itinerant actor Granville Thorndike, Alan Mowbray, who I thought was very funny. I like Alan Mowbray in this movie. Was, yes, I was going to mention there's a few cast members we didn't throw out. He was one of them. <laughs> he bids farewell to the old soldier dad. And it sort of seems like they had almost the same kind of relationship as Mr. Fabian and Billy mm-hmm. in Tombstone. But that is Francis Ford, John Ford's elder brother. Walter Brennan disliked John Ford. One time when Brennan was having a little trouble getting into the saddle, Ford yelled, can't you even mount a horse? Brennan shot back, no, but I got three Oscars for acting. <laughs> I think, as I mentioned, this was the first movie John Ford directed after the end of World War II. John Ireland, who played Billy Clanton, played Johnny Ringo in Gunfight at the OK Corral, 1957. James Earp says that he paid $25 for the cross. That's probably a rather absurd amount of money for a person in his position, because that's roughly to $780 in modern funds. And also, an uncredited role in the movie is Mae Marsh. I'm not sure who she plays. She was just an uncredited actress. I'm sure she was one of the old women that pops up occasionally in the film. She was a major star in Silent Days. She was in such films Mm. as Intolerance and Birth of a Nation. But when sound came in and as she got older, she got left behind. There were a lot of actresses like that, both male and female, who eventually made their living just playing bit and uncredited parts in sound films, often due to 
favors from directors. They cast them just as a way to give them some money and because they knew them from the older days. And Mae Marsh was one of these people. Speaking of the cast, two, two other people that I enjoyed in this film, they don't have real big parts, White Earp's brothers, who are played by Tim Holt and Ward Bond. I enjoyed them in this film. Tim Holt, of course, I always think of because he was in a lot of B-movie cowboy movies. And Ward Bond, a film that we covered on my podcast a few months ago called Gentleman Jim, he is fantastic in that movie as a boxer. I thought both of them were fun. With that, let's start closing out. And I asked you to choose a film or two to go with your choice that might interest our audience. When we were talking about Westerns and Henry Fonda being in one of them, the first film that came to my mind was what I think is one of the best Westerns ever made, which is, of course, Once Upon a Time in the West. But it's not a whole lot like Tombstone. Instead, I decided to mention a film that I had seen back when it came out and revisited recently because of another podcast I was going to be on and really enjoyed getting to visit it again. We actually mentioned it at one point earlier in the discussion. That's Lawrence Kasdan's Silverado. This is from the 80s, not the 90s, but I think as more modern Westerns go, I think Silverado is a really spirited and fun film to take a look at. I mean, like Tombstone, it's got a really dense cast of some great actors. Silverado is one that definitely uh, deserves a look if you haven't seen it fantastic i chose four films they're all about sheriffs trying to clean up a lawless town more or less first is edward dimitriak's 1959 warlock starring henry fonda again about a gunman hired as marshal to clean up a town beset by gangs but he runs into opposition when his deputy confronts him over not being totally legal in his dealings and when he also starts applying the law to the people who hired him. This is, I think, an underrated Western. Not a lot of people have heard it or seen it, and I think it's worth taking a look at. Then in the great classic High Noon from 1952, a sheriff who has resigned to get married is told that a man he sent to prison is headed back with his gang to get revenge, but when he asks for help from the town, he finds he is on his own. Uh, This was directed by Fred Cinnamon and starring Gary Cooper. They told Gary Cooper this wasn't about the McCarthy trials, but it was. They liked him. <laughs> In the 1939 comedy, Destry writes again, Jimmy Stewart plays a law officer who doesn't carry a gun, but makes it his mission to clean up the town of Bottleneck. This is the one where Marlene Dietrich sings, see what the boys in the back room will have. And it's a fantastic film. I told you I was trying to watch more Westerns. That's one I watched last year and loved it. And who can forget Mel Brooks's Blazing Saddles? <laughs> the satire to end all Western satires about a black man sent a sheriff to a lily white town. What no one knows is that he is sent because a corrupt politician wants to get rid of the town. That was probably my introduction to Westerns. I, when my parents bought us our first VHS player back at Christmas time, 1983, they went to the video store and they brought home four movies The Sting, Bullet, It's a Mad, 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 Mad World, and Blazing Saddles. <laughs> <laughs> well, what is next? What should we be expecting from you? Of course, you can visit my blog. Forgotten Films. That's at ForgottenFilmCast.wordpress.com. It's a new year and I am trying to do a lot more writing. I really dropped off with that last year. I was too lazy and I'm really trying to get back into the writing of reviews. I've already posted a bunch here just in the first 10 days or so of the month. Of course, there's always new episodes of the Forgotten Filmcast coming out. I just recorded one that'll be hitting in a few days here with Thomas Stoneham Judge where we talked about a film from 1991 called Diary of a Hitman starring Forrest Wood and Sherilyn Fenn. 
Well, as for me, I'll go through my usual litany. I'm a screenwriter and script consultant, and you can find more information about that on my Howard Kastner Screenplay Consultation page on Facebook. My blog is called Rantings and Ravings, and there I explore issues on film and screenwriting. I publish two books of short stories on Amazon, The Starving Artist and Other Stories, and The Five Corporations and One True Religion. These are sci-fi, supernatural, and fantasy short stories. I've also published the second edition of my screenwriting book, or Rantings and Ravings of a Screenplay Reader. And I'm an amateur photographer, and you can find those on Instagram. The previous episode was with blogger and podcaster Movie Rob, where we discussed The Bridge Over the River Kwai and King Rat, two films about prisoners of war in Japanese internment camps. For the next episode, filmmaker Jonathan Waisaki and I will discuss two movie satires, Clue and Murder by Death, two films about people trapped at a remote mansion with a murderer about. So with that, Todd, I want to thank you very much for being a guest on my show. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me back.